Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to a Blood Red podcast special. I'm Andy Kelly, and uh, I'm joined today by our full-time Liverpool reporter, uh, both home and away, James Pearce. You all right, James? Hi, Andy. And once again, uh, we are joined by uh, Ian Herbert, the uh, chief sports writer for The Independent. And Ian is here, uh, most excitingly, to talk about his new book, uh, Quiet Genius, uh, which is uh, uh, sort of titled Bob Paisley, Britain's, British football's greatest manager. Uh, that's a fantastic sentence to say, I think, and one that many Liverpool fans um, will will relish saying. Um, Ian, thank you very much for being it's with us. Be um, I've had the book a couple of days. Um, I've managed to get through a quarter of it, and it's 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 absolutely um, a fascinating read, I have to say. And there's there's something new on every page. Um, so many of us probably think we know Bob Paisley, and is it was it one of your motivations in writing the book to think that actually there's a hell of a lot we don't know about Bob Paisley, isn't it? Yeah, I think I mean. Uh, the number of conversations I had across the, you know, it's about a year writing the book, and the number of conversations I had where people would say, really, well, it was Shankly that that that, that kind of he 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 achieved what Liverpool achieved, um, and Bob just kind of, you know, sort of put 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 Bill's slippers on, put his driving gloves on, or whatever, and just went <laughs> away and did it, and and yet and yet, of course, Paisley was Paisley's Liverpool won the European Cup, which Shankly's Liverpool didn't, and I think probably in the in the post Alex Ferguson era. You know, and, and obviously the calamities that United have had, we've been reminded of how incredibly difficult it is to take over, uh, you know, from a legend like that, and, and how generally what happens is that the successor uh, fails, especially the number two. The, 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 you know, can you think of many number twos actually who've actually gone on to successfully manage a club? So I think that's where it was coming from. And, but, um, but I think like a lot of these kind of you know journeys into new new aspects of football that that, that we all kind of get into. Um, you discover more and more as you go along, really. Um, but I think probably I left it feeling a, a slight sense of indignation that you know that people will still tell us, well, it was Shankly, you know. And um, I'll shut up in a second and let you ask the next no, question. No, no, you... But 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 interestingly, interestingly, I mean, um, it was really interesting talking to Jamie Carragher about about Bob and about I suppose his tactical perspective on you know because I'm wanting to you know I thought Jamie would be great on you know why did they succeed in in Europe, you know, were they doing things differently there? And But one of the things he said was that when he came to the club, um, which must have been early 90s, I think, um, you know, that, that the people were still talking about Shanks, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, Ronnie Moran was still at the club at that time, and there was, there was all sorts of stories about, you know, the Shanks little, you know, habits and ways, etc. But no one really would talk about Bob, you know, still, you know, even then, so... Uh, yeah, I sort of. There's so much to talk about, really, but um, a different character to Shankly in every conceivable way, but one who, who achieved huge things. The, you start on the book with this fascinating little uh, passage about going through your own cuttings and finding the story yeah. of the um, it was the uh, Bayern Munich game, wasn't it? The, yeah. Uh, and um, and this incredible phrase from Bob that he, he, that, that he thought that performance had been there. I think their greatest ever performance in Europe out of 115, I think it yeah. was, you said at the time. And how that sort of statement would be treated in terms of if a modern-day manager had... And you talk about this cult of the modern manager and how yeah. sort of how it feels like you're relatively sort of... You use the word indignant about it, but the, where every these days every manager's 
utterances becomes massive headlines. And yeah. Paisley, you know, lived in a, in a different era and was a very different man in terms of this, these personality managers we see now. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, th- I think it's partly, it's partly uh, you know, the, the product of the, of the kind of the, the media process now. I mean, um, uh, you know, we, we, we were talking on... Um, over on the uh, on on the other web uh, podcast we've done for the site uh, today about Klopp, what he said after the Palace result, and so I th- I, th- I think I think what you tend to get, of course, is that we go and cover matches, and then we sit in the press conference room, and the managers come out, and and that in a sense is almost always becomes an important component of the of the way we write the reports up. So the manager might be steaming angry, he might be looking to try and cover up. Or whatever, and, it, and a lot of it's propaganda. But we always report it, don't we? Because it's the it's the live material. Whereas I suppose in those days there wasn't as much of that. It would be Bob with a bunch of people in a back corridor talking about it or whatever. How, however, um, you know, you, you, there's very little of him. And you go through back through all the cuttings from that period. You know, all the all you know, not just in the early days, but right when he was winning the European Cup in Rome 40 years ago. Um, and there's very little of Bob. There's very little. He features very little and. I mean, there, there are you know some of the, some of the pieces he'll come into play uh, in the mid in the sort of seventy five seventy six even in the seventy seven season he'll be talked about as someone who wasn't as good as Shankly you know his Liverpool team weren't as charismatic or as or as or as creative as Shankly so he'll sometimes be mentioned in a negative way but um, he said very little so he featured very little. Do you think that's the way? I mean, everyone's got a general impression. I would say of everyone. If you asked anyone about what they thought Bob Paisley was like, sort of, you know, um, sort of quiet and didn't want the limelight, and uh, you know, was had certain problems with communication, Absolutely shall right. we say? Yeah, was, yeah. So you, was that his doing, not to be that that sort of personality manager, or do you think it was the different times as well, Ian? Yeah, well, I think, I, mean, I think, I think, I think it was his doing fundamentally. In that, you know, when he actually took over, he, he was very worried about. Um, in that first season, he was very worried about the press conference side of things. He didn't think he was working. You know, he didn't want to do it anyway. He didn't want the job anyway for that reason. But I think it was the November of that 74-75 season. They'd lost a few games. He was getting a bit of a bit of a slating in some of the papers. And um, so they actually got... So Peter Robinson, the chief exec, and John Smith got Tom Saunders in, who was at that stage was sort of... Had been a schoolboy development uh, sort of manager, hadn't he? And he came in and was almost... Bob's, you know, public face in some incredible, ways. really. Yeah. was brought in for that yeah, job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and and that's, I mean, Peter talks, Peter talks a lot about Tom Saunders and about his huge state presence and importance at that club at that time. Tom's not really been that much written about in some ways. Mm. So I think, it, I think, it, yeah, I think it was more that just Bob was, um, he just struggled, as you say. His powers of communication were not great when he did talk. Some people couldn't understand his his, his uh, Sunderland accent anyway. Um, but but of course there were there were personality managers around then. I mean Malcolm Allison was was around. Clough was coming up on the on the scene. I mean Revy in a way was a personality manager. So it was in some ways those kind of characters were just starting to come through. But Bob certainly didn't conform to that. Yeah. The, the um, going back to where in terms right to the start in terms of Bob and where he came from. You mentioned Hetton La Hall and and. Ever, you know, many Liverpool fans still pay a pilgrimage there when they go up to Sunderland for a game, stopping off. I know the Spirit of Shankly coach stops off there most times, Does it? Does it? just yeah. because yeah. to you know for Paisley's. I 
and it was a it was a place he, that he never really left, isn't it? Yeah. You get that impression when you where as you read the book that he'd go back there as often as he as he could really. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, uh, I suppose it was a place where I mean, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to get to know Bob's um, family very well. You know, he's got two sons and uh, Graham and Robert and a daughter um, Christine. I got to know them very well and seen lots of the photographs that they've kept all the years and. Um, the ones I think which were the most beautiful and and listeners may actually remember this set from down the years in the Echo or on in books or whatever was there was a lovely set uh, when he won the European Cup in 77. He went back up to Hetton Hole on the train with the European Cup to meet the old boy, to meet his own his old group of mates, basically. And there's a brilliant um, there's a brilliant photograph of him on the train with it on the, you know, obviously it wasn't the Virgin Pendolino in those days, <laughs> it, sit with, a, with a trophy right on the table in front of him. But there's a beautiful picture, uh, which is in the book of, of, of him and four of these old boys sitting on a bench, you know, uh, you know as, and as they did in those days, a lot of them, you know, with a jacket and tie on, you know, yeah. you know and, and there's the... There's the old big ears sitting right in the middle of them, you know, yeah. the European Cup. I think I've spoken to uh, Graham uh, uh, in the past myself. I think he thinks that's, that was Bob's favourite picture, wasn't oh, it? Oh, is, is that what? Yeah, I think, I think yeah, so. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. I'll put that picture on there with the words that introduced this pod. So if you listen well, to it now, look, at the, look on that. It'll be yeah, in there. That's good. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously he went on to serve Liverpool for 44 years, didn't he? Which is an unbelievable amount of time yeah. in so many different roles. But... It's interesting, obviously, as well, that things could have been very different at the start of his playing career. Obviously, he was turned down, wasn't he, by, by Sunderland, yeah. his, his yeah. boyhood club, and ended up at Bishop Auckland. Things could have been very different if he hadn't been turned down by them earlier. Well, I know, that's right, that's right, yeah. I mean, um, you know, and I think one of the things that, one of the things about Bob that, I, one of the preconceptions about Bob, which I think I've actually found to be wrong in some ways, is this idea of Bob as the... Uh, as the cuddly, avuncular, cardigan-wearing, yeah. slipper-wearing, you know, um, old chap shuffling around Melwood, you know, um, nice as pie, etc., etc. He was as hard as nails, <laughs> brutally hard, you know. And, and, and in terms of, I mean, you, you speak to some of the players who were on the fringes of the team, who'd be dropped, you know, without so much as a blink from Bob. And I think, to come back to what you said about the Sunderland time, I mean, I think that he came from a very, very hard background where, you know, they eked out an existence. His dad worked down the, down the pit. He almost went to work down the pit. Sunderland was obviously his obsession, as, any, as it would be for any young lad growing, growing up in Hetton La Hole. Uh, Sunderland rejected him because he was too small. And I think there was a sense of, you know, having to sort of prove yourself and almost, you know, de- a determination and a, and, a, and, a, and a will to win that was almost born of perhaps of in some ways, from that first rejection and from where, from where he came from. And, what, and I suppose Shanks, in some ways, came from that tough background too, didn't he? Although, although he perhaps didn't have the rejection that you're describing, James. But what, what Bob always said about him and Bill, the one thing they had in common was that they just hated to lose. You know, they were just really, really bad losers. And the, he obviously he made an agreement to, to come to Liverpool as a player and came down on the train, I think, as you describe in the mm. book, and, and um, he, um, he, he'd had his chance to play once up at, uh, at uh, Sunderland's ground, didn't he, I think, for, the, for the, his amateur team? Or, yeah, or the, second, yeah, that's right, the, the, the amateur cup final, playing, you know, playing for British Auckland, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, he comes down to Liverpool, and 
but he had to wait a hell of a long time for his first team debut, didn't he? I think it was, was it something like seven years. Yeah, because of the war. Yeah, because they were all they were all called up. They were all called up for the war effort, and um, you know, so he goes off to serve in the Middle East with the Desert Rats, and you know, a couple of his mates die in that conflict, and uh, you know, he, he comes under enemy fire, and um, you know, on a few occasions, I think he's a sort of a tank driver at one stage, and inadvertently drives into some kind of German command post, and then. <laughs> Does a quick U-turn and goes back from where he kills you. Do so, um, yeah. I mean, I, and I suppose that must give you a different perspective on life, mustn't it? Really, Absolutely, in some yeah. ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and I think in many ways his, his playing career was actually, you know, very short because you know they didn't start they didn't start till after the war and then. Um, he started the, almost the same time as Billy Little. Is that is that? That's right. right exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and. You know, c- come nineteen fifty, he becomes captain, and but really, that you know, it's a, it's a it's a very short career, and I suppose that was the tragedy for a lot of those those men who went to serve in the war. You know, they their careers didn't, you know, they were over before they knew where they were. And he was a he was a left half in old old terminology, which uh, I know not everyone will be familiar with uh, listening to this, but uh, that essentially role to look after the the opposition's right winger, that, that, that's how that's you right, describe that's it, right. book, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, again, a shield, I suppose, for, you know, for the for the defence, I guess. Um, and, um, you know, and by all accounts, a, you know, a very good left half, you know, one of, one of the best left halves in England, although, you know, there were others ahead of him in the in the England pecking order. And a hard player would seem yeah, to Yeah, I mean, some of, some of the stories of, you know, um, and obviously, we know we worry a lot now about players getting head injuries and stuff. But I mean, those guys—they just, you know, the stories of Bob. You know, it sounds like he's sort of half on, you know, half conscious when he's knocked out, and he's he, and the, you know he, get, he runs up the terraces to sort of run it off at half time, and he's back on second half. So uh, incredible what they what they what they went through. Yeah. Then there's an experience, maybe the one of the guiding experiences of his playing career comes when he. He's not selected for an FA FA Cup final for Liverpool, yeah. and um, it was um, you know it's obviously I'm sure would have would have affected him, but um, um, it, it's something that he as he went went through his, as a manager he was never he was never scared of 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 dropping a player and and he yeah. and he he didn't he didn't wasn't always the nicest. In the, in the way he went about it, either. No, no, that's right. I mean, it, it, I suppose it goes to show in some ways the so the so yeah so yeah he, he scores against Everton in the nineteen fifty FA Cup semi finals. Um, he's told not to go not to advance too far up the field uh, and to sort of you know stay back, but he goes up anyway and scores. And then he's injured um, and the, and thinks he's all right. He thinks he's recovered from that in time for the final. The, the directors picked the team in those days and it was a majority vote against Paisley being picked. His name was even in the cup final programme, so he thought he was going to play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so, but, 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 and it would be easy to assume that that experience would have perhaps made him gentler on players or, or you know, that he would be transparent with players. But, I mean, if the, you know... He did have flaws, like we all do, and, and one of his one of his profound flaws was that he was very, very bad at telling players they weren't fit. Because this was the thing that would tend to put him into conflict with with his players as a manager more than anything else. And um, and he hated conflict because because he couldn't communicate terribly well in a, in a, you know in a conflict situation. So he just basically pretend they were playing or make them feel that they probably were, and then then he'd read the team out and they weren't, and he he promised them, oh, you'll play next time or. I mean, David Fairclough talks a lot about this, and um, and 
you know, in fact, David talks a lot about in his in his own book, Superstar, which is a, which is a great book, you know, about the Paisley era. Um, and, uh, you know, he drove some of the players mad, some of the ones on the fringes, you know, Steve Highway, you know, at times drove him bonkers because he couldn't quite front up with it and just tell him straight. Yeah. So, And his playing career, you say, relatively short lived and has to come, come to an end and he sort of gets the idea that it's, it's, he's nearly finished. And he, there's this fascinating bit in the early part of the book where about him trying to, fashion a rule for himself continuing at, yeah. at Anfield and um, and some of the rules he found for himself were absolutely incredible there's a brilliant story of him and Tommy Smith sorting a girder out under the uh, yeah. Cameron Road stand yeah I mean I think some of it was just you know make yourself useful lads you know and you know he, he was a he was very handy he was he was a qualified bricklayer I mean he he's a I mean Bob built his own he built his own conservatory in uh, in his house in in Walton um, so some of it was making it just, just he was a handy bloke, made himself useful, but he, he kind of, I think, gleaned the physio, the physio thing, physiotherapy and medical science, sports science was just starting to kind of become something which people were looking at. So he got, he got into that and there was a connection through, uh, through Sir John Moores, who, who was then involved a little bit with Liverpool, I think he was, he was a friend of the, of, um, uh, the Liverpool chairman of the time and, and, and Sir John arranged it that Bob could go into hospitals and get a bit of work experience. So, uh, yeah, so by the time Shankly arrived, he had quite a few strings to his bow. And so he, he sort of took on that physio role. And this was after, you mentioned, his qualified bricklayer. He'd, he'd built one of the dugouts, hadn't he, at, at, uh, was at Anfield? Yeah, Melbourne, he built one of the dugouts and, and Ian Callaghan talks about how he built the sort of thing called, they call it, they call it the, the band box, which is where all the players... The non-playing players used to stand and watch the team play. Uh, yeah, he did, he did a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, he, Which, in the modern context, is just incredible. It's isn't mad. It? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Christine, his daughter, talks about how her two brothers, uh, Graham and, and, and Rob, used to argue when the, in the house that they had in South Manor Way. So Bob basically built a partition wall down the, between the middle of the, you know, down the middle of the room. So and from the back garden. There was this large window, and you could just see this kind of wall running sort of down, if you like, between the window. It was sort of, sort of slight Heath Robinson, but yeah. you know, imagine. A, and he put, he took a fireplace out. Took, he took his own fireplace out while he was recovering from a Achilles operation. And I mean, just as you say, unimaginable now, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's amazing on the the physio side of things. I know that a lot of players who played for him kind of talk about how we had this kind of uncanny knack of diagnosing yeah. injuries correctly, which. He didn't have any kind of like medical background or anything. Yeah, no, that's As right. He said yeah. sports science was at such a, an early stage then. I think players were spoken before about they were using some machine that they usually use on horses, I think, yeah, at one no, point at Melbourne. That's right, that's right. No, he used to sort of have this habit, you'll say, well, uh, the players tell me, he'd say, oh, well, yeah, no, that's a two-weeker, or that's a six-weeker, or, you know, that's a, you know, that's whatever. You know, he knew, instinctively knew how long players would be out for. And I, mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I think what kind of discovered from the medical side of it was that although, it was, although a fair bit's been made of, you know, Bob the medical guy, mm. and there were some brilliant cuttings from the Echo, by the way, from around that era, you know, of, you know, Bob, Bob the, you know, the great medical scientist. and With some mad machine. Yeah, it's like breathless, you know, this is, you know, Bob's the man, you know, Bob's the new kind of, you know, he's the, he's the trailblazer. But in actual fact, some of it was sort of slightly dodgy science, you know, there were all sorts of stuff going off, you know, which obviously wasn't doing the players a lot of good, but... Um, so, but but I think what what you know to come to what you said, James, about you know he would spot an injury and, and and see how long you know 
see how long a player would be out for and stuff. That's where he really came to the fore. And that's what he, I think, delivered that, that, you know, more than Shankly was just an incredible understanding of, you know, um, a, a specific weakness in a player or a specific strength or patterns of play in a game or, you know, which way a keeper might dive, you know, an opposition keeper for penalties or, you know, just the, you know, I, mean, I suppose you might call it these days, the, you know, the, the marginal gain, yeah. the science of the marginal gain, you know, I mean, Bob would have hated that kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, jargon, but that's where he came into play. And I think his vision for how a player might have a slightly weak left side or, you know, might be carrying some kind of injury. Uh, that was part of that sort of marginal gain bit, really, which, and I think Shanks had obviously incredibly charismatic, huge personality, big picture, massive motivator, none of which Paisley was, but he had the sort of the small detail um, in a way that no one else did. Do you, do you think in that respect they complemented each other perfectly, the fact that's why yeah. it worked so well? I, th- I think they did, I think they did. I mean, I just don't know how much, it's, it's, I, I, sus- I suspect that, that Bob didn't always get a chance to um, be heard. Mm. Because, of course, although Liverpool were, you know, they, they won promotion back to the first division, uh, they won the FA Cup in 65, and, and obviously Shanks was, you know, that, that's what he delivered the club. He resurrected the club. But, of course, they did have that period in the late 60s where they, uh, and early 70s, where they stopped winning. There was the FA Cup defeat to, to Watford. Mm. Um, and, you know, where suddenly they, they'd started to fall away again. And, and, you know, Shanks almost had to sort of rebuild the, you know, the entire team. He had to start again, really. And I, I do wonder whether, um, you, you wonder, well, what did Paisley say in, at that time? Was he just not strong enough as a character to actually have his say? Um, did he have his say and wasn't listened to? You know, because I think one of the things that you, you is, is, is strong and very good about the Paisley era was that there was constant renewal. You know, they they never had to sort of start from scratch. I mean, there was a bit of a, a blip in the first half of the 80-81 season when, uh, you know, Rush and um, Whelan came through and, and and they did change the team quite a lot at that time. But um, they never had to sort of throw things out and start again as they did in, in that period with Shanks. So they did complement each other, but I do wonder whether... Bob really was heard as he might have been, and it took him his, his, his ascent to the manager's position to actually be able to really, you know, do his thing. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say a lot. A lot of people have been made and written over the years about his reluctance to take the job. In, in yeah, yeah. I mean, from the people you spoke to, did that did that come across in terms of just how much he had to be almost shoved into doing it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think he he'd said, you know, three or four times, you know, or more, you know, well. Look, it's not for me. It's really not for me. And there's a there's a brilliant um, scene that Steve Highway, who's a brilliant interviewee, and a, and a you know Steve. I mean, if I could just digress for a minute and just say you don't we'd always see or hear as much of Steve Highway as a as a kind of a a witness of that period. But wow, what a, what an intelligent, brilliant uh, kind of observer he was and, and, and witness he was but yeah so Steve talks about the first ever when Bob arrives in the dressing room it's incredible says, this yeah. you know he sort of says look you know I don't want it lads you know uh, you know <laughs> they, they, they said it had to be me uh, you know I didn't want it I told them I, I told them they should just tell Bill to go on a cruise and he you know and Shanks to go on a cruise and he's standing there in a sort of slightly tight-fitting goal atop looking you know <laughs> a little bit rotund as Bob did you know and um so yeah, James, you're right. They, they they didn't want it, but I think what what was crucial about the you know the, that period in, and what, the way that 
that process evolved was that they said, okay, well, we'll help you on the things like player acquisition and, and contract and new contracts. We'll, we'll help you do that. And of course, now in these days, player acquisition, you know, some managers don't want the board to be involved in who they should hire. There's obviously this kind of story, isn't there, generally about should players club have, should players have directors of football and, you know, who should make those decisions. And in, in some ways, um, Peter Robinson was almost a director of football as well as, a, as, well as a, a chief executive at that time. And it all stemmed from Bob's initial reluctance to focus on anything other than the, the actual games and the players at his disposal. That that whole change from Shankly to Paisley is just an absolutely fascinating bit in this book. And um, if I could point anyone towards any bit of it, that's that just incredible in terms of the bits I've read so far. And, and Ian, what I thought was fascinating was the Shankly relationship with Paisley um, because um, he Paisley's nickname was The Rat, which yeah. re- referenced back to his days in The Desert Rats, but also because for a few of the players, they saw him very much as... Um, Someone who did a lot of Shankly's dirty work for him, if you like, yeah, and yeah. Um, and it, it, you know he wasn't he certainly wasn't universally popular among the players. Paisley was he? No, no. I think he was seen as uh, as Phil Thompson described it as the narc in some ways. You know, he sort of, um, I mean, b- you know, Bill, Bill, neither of them like confrontation, but I mean, but but Bill, you know, would probably get quite emotional about it and really didn't want the the sort of the nitty gritty chat with the player or whatever. So Bob seemed to, you know, by every account, Bob was the man who. Who would go and go and have a word and try and put them straight and you know and, and that I mean you can imagine why Shankly would be so much more popular than than Bill uh, than than Bob really wouldn't you you know I mean not only is 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 Bob the narc but I mean Bill's the one who can lift them to incredible heights and and Bob really can't do that you know emotionally in some ways um, you know and I think that's why the one the players you know the the, the the players, the former players who really loved Bob were the ones who, who just played for him, you know, yeah. I mean, I think if you, it's, it's hard to find a player who played for both who would feel that, you know, well, actually Bob was, Bob was the better man in any way. So all that I think has to be qualified by saying that if it weren't for Shankly, we wouldn't be talking about the Bob Paisley story because it, because it was, it was Bill's, uh, you know, genius and, and vision and charisma that was needed to lift the club you know, off its knees, really. And there's just no way Paisley would have had the, had the character to do that. So, uh, you know, the relationship is, is a difficult one, I think, between the two, two of them at times. But, um, you know, you can't disguise the fact that Shankly set, set it all up. Yeah, and then Shankly, I mean, as it's been well documented, obviously he regretted his decision to resign, but he was, he was given the chance to recommend the successor and Bob Paisley wasn't the name he came up with, and it's a. It, this is another fascinating aspect of the mm-hmm. book, and uh, you, you know, there was a, I'm sure a few people will shudder when, when they hear the name that Shankly came up with, wasn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, Jack Jack Charlton was the, was the name that was the name that Shanks came up with when when Robinson and Smith asked him, and um, uh, and that was really, I mean, Peter's testimony is that is that that was the last of a say, really. Shanks had on it. I mean, there was no. I think when when it was suggested to him that uh, you know maybe they would they would employ Bob in that job. I think he, he certainly didn't say no. I mean, he said, oh, you know that that that'll be okay, you know whatever. But and and, and went with that. But um, it was very much Peter Robinson and uh, I would say Peter Robinson above all. I think probably with John Smith who had the vision to say, well, we don't want to um, we don't want to kind of 
change things too much here. You know, we, we don't want to kind of, um, we, we don't want to start again. We, we want to kind of maintain and retain a bit of a lot of what we've already got. So let's, let's recruit from within. There's a hilarious section in the book where you re regale the tale of his first tactical talk before his first game, which basically involves him not being able to remember the names of any of the opposition yeah. players, eventually turning over the tactics board and walking out and going, just beat them lads or something along yeah. those lines. And, and it, it's, you know, I'm sure the players were left relatively bemused by it all. Um, but after a few months, you make clear that at some point along the line, Paisley, however serious and I think you have doubts about how serious he was, did go in and say, it's not for me this. Yeah, I, I he'd, been, he'd, been getting a, he'd been getting a very bad press, really, in, in the autumn of 74 when, you know, they started off well, they beat Luton in their first game, started off well, but then things started to go a bit awry. They lost to Malcolm Allison's Man City, they lost to Burnley, they lost to Ipswich, Bobby Robson's Ipswich. And, uh, you know, he was getting a lot of, he was getting some stick, really. He was getting some stick along the lines that I think we can probably understand in our modern uh, environment as 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 twenty first century football journalists because he you know he, he was very much that oh well it wouldn't have happened it wouldn't have happened in Shankly's time you know Shankly had a hold on the players that Bob's not got and there can be a bit of that can't there if if a manager you know moves on for example and you know we we always think you know the grass always seems to be greener where we were and um, so yeah that was that was the kind of um, and, and he was get he was very uncomfortable with the press because he couldn't deal with that side of it and um, and that's when they really brought. Uh, Tom Saunders into play and um, he he became you know almost executive manager you might call it you know just helping with some of that um, outward facing side of outward facing side of the, although in a, ostensibly in a very subtle way because you know you don't see Tom quoted but um, he is almost helping to sort of get the message across and it was it, I mean it was Bob's problems in dealing with the press in a way that sort of created the sort of Mersey Mafia, as we as has been called down, the situation which continues into this day, really, of of the local beat reporters for all the national papers, and and and, and the echo at that time was 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 separate, but who who would instead of having them all ring him up at home on a Sunday, which he couldn't quite cope with, he yeah. put something else in place where maybe one would ring and they'd, yeah. they'd share it, and and then he became sort of close friends with a well, maybe not close friends, but there was a group of sort of trusted journalists who he would yeah. speak to, and they had a very individual way of of, of talking to. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think there they they was because I mean, it, it's I think it's pretty hard to really get across how difficult it was for him to communicate. I mean, he, he was not one of life's big talkers. Anyone anyone who's who'd worked with him would tell you that. So, you know, the, I think the, the 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 journalists kind of said, "Look, we'll we'll have a chat, and then we'll kind of." Finish your sentences. Reach an, yeah, there's a recent agreement as to something, what is it you're actually trying to say, and um, and that and that um, and that's how it was, and that's how it was. And um, but there, were, I mean, it strikes me that, that that there were some games looking at looking back at the cuttings, which is all we've really got to go on in terms of the actual the, the first draft of this this incredible piece of history is that you know you, the, the 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 old away game where you know he would um, perhaps he wasn't as protected. By the group, by the local group, there maybe it would be. There was one game at Coventry that struck me in particular, where they draw nil nil, and it hadn't been very good, and it was a, you know more evidence, so it was said of how they weren't as shiny as they had been under Shankly. But you know he, he gave he acquitted himself fairly well post match there. He, he he gave out some. I think he might have given the team a bit of stick actually that day, and so you know perhaps he became more able to to, to communicate 
um, even within three or four years um, than than some gave him you know gave him credit. It's an interesting one though, in the sense that you know I think probably uh, I, I should mention John Keith here um, of Radio Merseyside and Form Express, who's been a great uh, help uh, and support on the book and. You know, and it is one of, I'm sure it was one of Bob's friends. And it just goes to show that in those days, you know, you could actually have a relationship with a manager like that and, and, and actually build that kind of trust. And, okay, so they did, it was slightly pre-organized what they were going to ask, what they were going to say. Um, so there were none of those con- controversial quotes we might see now. But, but I'm sure the actual flow of information to them from Bob was, was immense because he trusted them really. So... And that's the relationship that, as we all, as we three know, is, is, is quite hard to build with managers these days because we just don't know them in that way. Yeah. So. And he, he, he may not have wanted the job when he took it. He, as you say, grew quickly into it. And, and one of his maybe big signs, which you point to in the book, that you know, he wasn't you know, the, this avuncular cardigan-wearing character was when he... He basically goes to Peter Robinson and says, "I can't have Bill Shankly round the place anymore." And that's yeah. uh, it's 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 it, it's you know it well known that you know Shankly ended up going over to train at Everton, and he was yeah. having been coming into Melwood every day after he left, and that was a sign of Paisley. Whatever you thought of him, that he was going to make it, do it his yeah, way, and make I, it his yeah, team. Absolutely, that's right. And I thought, you know, um, I just think that. He, you're quite right, Andy. That's exactly, that's exactly what he said. I mean, it was I think Pete and it was John Smith who was actually deputed to go and have the have the difficult conversation with with Bill. I wouldn't have imagined Bob would have handled that phone call terribly well. But any of us But you know, I mean, if if that initial team talk when he said, "Oh, it's not for me," I, you know, I don't want to do it. If that still held true, you know, a few months later, he had every opportunity to sort of say to Bill, "Well, okay, you can come back. I'll I'll go back into the shadows." So. In some ways, I think that the fact that he said in the first place he didn't want it, I think part of the culture in that, at that time was you never wanted to, and, it's, and there's something quite Liverpool about this, I think. You know, I, I don't know whether you guys agree with specific to this city, but you don't want to stab your own people in the back. You know, you don't want to stab your, your boss in the back. You know, unless, well, I mean, maybe we... Maybe we you know, I, I, that, that, that was it, really. You know, if, you, if there was someone there who you trusted, who was, who was in your group, who was with your team, you didn't stab them. And that's what he was afraid that it might be seen that the minute Bill went out the door, that he was somehow making himself comfortable in, in, in Shankly's seat. But and I think the fact that he said to John Smith, look, you've got to do something about this, demonstrates that, yeah, he did actually want to be manager, actually, and he did think he could do something with the job. And obviously then he, he sort of he produces this, this team which sort of almost, you say, constantly renews itself and goes on to this... <clears throat> unprecedented wave of trophy success. Um, you know, far more trophies than 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 Shankly, as you say, building on a foundation that Bob could never have put there. But yeah. but yeah. and and this is where you know the, the sort of the subtitle of the book, Britain British football's greatest manager, uh, derives really because his his ratio of, of trophies to any other manager really in the, in a sort of uh, nine-year period yeah. w- w- is just incredible, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, so yeah, I mean that that and that that may be a debate. I mean, yeah, but United fans who've seen the the cover on Twitter certainly 
a challenging that. You know, he wasn't <laughs> football British football was great. Don't waste your evenings here. Exactly, so. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Life's, life's too short. Life's too short. <laughs> However, you know, you're quite right. You know, in terms of the, the ratio of of of, um, of trophies per season, one point five trophies per season, and and you know. Within, I mean, and one of the points that that Cara makes actually is, you know, he says you actually forget, you know, within three years he'd won the European Cup, he won the league, he'd won the UEFA Cup, you know, it didn't take him very long to actually win those, you know, to by '77, he, you know, he 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 he'd won all those things, um, and and I think, you know, so some some would say, well, um, Clough's achievement Clough's achievement was greater because he came from nothing, Forest were nothing, and he won the European Cup, to which I would say that yes, he did deliver that. From nothing, and perhaps the initial achievement was extraordinary, but Forrest died as quickly as they as they, as they were born as a, as, a, as a force because, and Clough admitted it was his own ego, uh, his own ego told him that he had to renew utterly and had to sell, 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 buy new players in, and and they bought badly, they bought badly, and they and they were before Paisley had, had finished in '83, Forrest were already well on the decline. Um, and then I suppose Ferguson, you would say, you would say, well, um, uh, you know, his achievements over a long period of time were substantial, and then that he built them up under pressure. You know, for me, he he he's beneath, uh, he's won beneath Paisley in terms of achievement because he continually achieved. Um, but you know, Bob Paisley's Liverpool side won the league in after after the first season, which was blank. They won it. They won the league in all but one season. Um, um, and, that we, and it was not an easy time for, for Liverpool. I mean, there were some strong teams in there. Forest and Villa both won the European Cup during this period. You know, they were playing in a, in a league where the best of Europe was also present. Ipswich were a very strong force. City, QPR, very strong teams. Um, and, um, you know, and, 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 he, and he kept that going with, with this kind of constant renewal. So... That's the argument, and, and others others would would challenge it. But um, you know, you know. Well, you know where I stand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're only a few weeks away from the 40th anniversary of Rome, 77. I think you know that obviously that was that almost like set the standard for everything that Liverpool have been been, been trying to achieve ever ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was um, it was an incredible. Um, uh, Night that night, I remember, remember where, I, where I was on 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 that, on that night where I was watching it that night in our kitchen at home. But um, yeah, there's there's something I think there was something about that first one, wasn't there? Of all the three, there was obviously Bruges at Wembley and then um, uh, Real Madrid in Paris. But I think there was something about that first one which made it particularly special. I think possibly the fact that they'd you know they'd obviously lost the FA Cup final to United a few days earlier. I was, always remember. Emlyn Hughes almost like having to drag himself up to the up to the you know, up the steps at yeah. Wembley, having lost, and I suppose it was that sense of you know from tra- from tragedy to glory, really, with that um, with that with that particular one. And there was definitely a way that they played, I think, that was different. You know, they they were they they weren't as uh, ambitious and attacking away. They used to soak up the pressure. They used to try and kill the crowd off, um, and and I think. In the Shankly era, there'd been far more blood and thunder away away in Europe, and they'd learned lessons from that. Obviously, there was the '65 Milan incident where they always felt that they were sort of literally cheated of that yeah. semi-final. Um, but e- but even you know, come '71, '72, '73, the Shankly Liverpool still looked a little bit naive in Europe compared with the Paisley team. Really, he very quickly when he when he arrived, didn't he? And 
sort of put his stamp on how he wanted the team to play with the, bringing in Phil Thompson. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was relatively untried yeah. at the time. And, that seems uh, quite important to me that, that um, you know, Larry Lloyd went out the door um, for big money to Coventry and, and Thompson was, was put in there with Emlyn as, as ball playing centre half, particularly, particularly Thompson. And then Phil Neal arrived and was playing very soon as a, as, as the, as the attacking, as a sort of attacking left winger. And then, then Joey Jones arrived. I mean, Joey was more you, you sort of stop right back, but um, that felt to me like quite an important part of it, really, in terms of the way the way it felt a little bit different to the Shankly team. And then I think some of the changes were almost they weren't planned, but they were almost you know a, a result of the players that came in. So when Keegan went in '77, Dalgleish was by far the the, the player that uh, Paisley wanted most as his replacement. Uh, Jock Steen had recommended him on a number of occasions. Oh, well, a number of occasions he'd said that he's your man. I think Jock wanted to lose him, but but because of the kind of player Kenny was, there was there was no point in trying to have a kind of a you know a barnstorming forward like like Keegan and and and, and play up. They 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 operated far more between the lines when Kenny arrived. So some of it was a reaction. The changing face of Liverpool tactically seemed to be a, a response to the kind of players at his disposal. So rather than to say, well, this is the way my team's going to play, we're going to buy players to fit it, they bought the, they bought the players they felt were, were Liverpool players and the system fitted around that. I mean, his, eye, his eye for a player was unbelievable, wasn't it? When you look at some of the names that were brought in during his tenure, obviously Phil Neal, McDermott, Hanson, Douglish, Sooners, Kennedy, Whelan, Rush, Lawrence and Nicol. Yeah. Yeah. There weren't too many duds signed. No, well, that's that right, and I think exactly that's totally right. And I think it, what was interesting about some of them was that you know, like Alan Kennedy, he was obviously a really important player for Paisley, um, and, and and Joey as well, actually Joey Jones, who was you know, I think Bob thought he was mad some of the time, which is probably <laughs> he, he was a crazy guy and is a brilliant bloke, but you know, he, he he liked the mix of players, he liked the genius in there, but he also liked the guys who would just run themselves, you know, run into a wall, and he. He thought he thought is, is the, the metaphor he often used he, was he compared it he compared players to racehorses that he'd seen at the Malton stables in Yorkshire and he'd said you know you see the you see the racehorses going out from the stables and and some of them you know they, they won't step out when the weather's bad or you know on a certain day <laughs> they'll be a bit you know they they they're the supreme you know kind of genius of the of of the fraternity but then you'll get some who'll just always go they'll always go and I think Kennedy fitted into that mold brilliantly and. Uh, and so did Joey, and uh, and so did David Johnson, who who was a, a phenomenally important part of that team. But you know, and they paid a lot of money, like two hundred thousand pounds for David Johnson. I think he might have been the second most expensive player at that time when they bought him. Um, and he had massive frustrations, David. He didn't play a lot for the first few years, and but then gradually he came good. And there was a period where Kenny was injured, and and, and Johnson came into came into the fray really. So. Uh, yeah, not not just buying the obvious players in some ways. I think that that was the thing that, and there was something so sweet about the fact that the the Paris final was Alan Kennedy's final because it seemed to be, and it was a, a chapter of the book on on Alan really, and on, on the kind of you know what he seemed to represent really, the Hetton spirit as I call it, because you know yeah. he's from Hetton too, and there seemed to be something incredibly right and appropriate about Alan playing his part in that final. Brilliant, and. And you mentioned it, it was a year's work, the book. As you sort of look back on it now, and I'm sure for, for an author it must be fantastic to see the, the final product and yeah, that, that, yeah. that sort of sense of achievement. Yeah, yeah. And as you look back on, on, on the man who you've sort of spent this year with, what, what's your overriding impression of him in terms of 
perhaps how it changed from when you started out uh, on that year's journey to where where you leave Bob now yeah, as, you, as you commit it to the yeah, shells? I think, of I, your think, I think overall, I think overall, what I didn't get, what I didn't get was just how hard he could be, and actually to an extent, how how nasty he could be if he wanted to be. You know, he he, he wasn't really, you know, he he didn't suffer fools. So I think you know what the image that's kind of almost been deconstructed in my mind is the one of the cardigan wearing uncle you know because even Kenny calls him his uncle you know but but you see Kenny was 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 was, the, was one of the two elite players of that team Kenny and Graham Souness I mean Bob loved the bones of them so of course he w- would have seen like the uncle and the you know the avuncular figure to them but I mean to the ones where there was a, a tougher decision to make for Bob do I play him do I play him um you know he was hard and and I think that's an in- incredibly important part of part of management so you can be quiet as as he was but you can still be as hard as nails well everybody um it's been an absolute pleasure to have ian herbert with us today um the book is quiet genius bob paisley british football's greatest manager i can't wait to finish work today to get back to reading it to be honest with you um all i can say is if you think you know bob paisley um until you read this book i don't think you really do um 100% 100% recommended. Buy it for yourself and buy it for all your friends and you'll be very popular from then on. Um, um, this has been your Blood Red podcast special on uh, Quiet Genius, the new book about Bob Paisley. Ian, thank you very it's much. It's been a real pleasure to be on. Thanks ever so much for having me. Cheers.